847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to Escort to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, my focus is on French composer Maurice Jarre, uh, which you may have already guessed from hearing that sample uh, music right at the opening of the intro. If you didn't know the name, uh, you definitely know the movie, and that was from Lawrence of Arabia, uh, one of the most famous themes from all of uh, movie music, uh, you know, uh, since it began, really. Um, Maurice Jarre, uh, that, that was his debut, essentially, for English-speaking audiences. Um, he uh, hailed from France, and... Uh, he had been uh, found by the uh, producer, Sam Spiegel, on Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, there's an interesting story behind that, which I can I can touch upon. But uh, that theme definitely um, became such a staple. Um, and, and it was a film after that, especially anything that had to do with the desert or adventure, epic kind of sound. Uh, that sprawling, um, broad, uh, sweeping theme um, just set a trend that continues to this day. It's still referenced, it's still parody to this day, uh, that theme uh, from Lawrence of Arabia. So this episode is part of the uh, recurring segment uh, that I like to call listening to, uh, as I usually spotlight a specific composer or genre or year, kind of figuring out again what are the hallmarks, what are the defining features of that uh, notable composer, um, such as what makes a John Barry score sound like a John Barry, or what makes a Marie Char score sound like a Marie Char score. What are the aspects we can listen for if it's certain instruments? Is it a musical structure, uh, or just how uh, he or she approaches a project that's unique to them. Uh, Marie Shard definitely does have a unique uh, sound and and style to his music that has made it recognizable uh, throughout uh, his career. He uh, unfortunately passed away in 2009, um, but during the almost five decades that he worked in uh, both French, uh, in European and uh, American movies, he um, brought forth his own unique style, his own unique stamp um, that within a few bars, uh, usually if I heard a piece of music uh, for a movie he scored, if I heard a few bars, I didn't know it was Marie Char, within a few bars, I knew it. Uh, same thing as with uh, John Barry or Bernard Herrmann. Uh, there was something, uh, just there's a unique flavor to his sound um, that, that uh, couldn't be uh, imitated um, and is just definitely endemic to him. Now, while this isn't meant to be a complete biography on Marie Char or an overview of his entire career, uh, I'd like to give some background on him um, in that uh, he was born in Lyon, France in 1924 and studied harmony and percussion at the Paris Conservatory. Uh, I once read an interview with him where he talked about how his parents didn't really uh, support him studying music. I think his his father had more of an engineering background, and he came to study music late, um, at least he considered it late, and uh, that he picked up percussion, or he decided to focus on percussion because he uh, had stated that um, starting to study uh, conducting or playing the violin or playing the clarinet, that he was so far behind it would take 15 years just to get good at it. So he kind of went in the percussion route um, and then also studied harmony 
and um, and studied under composer Arthur Honegger, uh, actually. Uh, I actually find it uh, kind of ironic that uh, he studied percussion because his music is so heavily melodic, and uh, the fact that he has composed some of the most memorable um, movie melodies of all time, uh, that, of course, being Lawrence of Arabia, and then we'll also touch on Laura's theme from Dr. Zhivago, so... I think it's kind of interesting. He, um, after the Paris Conservatory, he did eventually start composing um, in the early 1950s in France, um, first for the stage, um, for uh, for their national theater, for a number of plays, uh, composed for ballets, and then started to move into short films and documentaries. Um, and uh, so he, he started making a name for himself kind of along uh, around the time that the new wave uh, uh, trend was hitting France, that, uh, that, that French films were becoming uh, a much bigger thing, and they were kind of revolutionizing film um, in their own way. Now, in terms of the um, hallmarks, the tenets of his style that I, at least I, I seem to find recurring um, throughout the, the, his career, um, right from the get-go, um, th- there are specific chord progressions that he seems to favor. Um, and uh, it, it's, the more you listen to some of his main themes, the more you'll sort of hear that, that chord progression that, that moves. And you're like, oh, it, you know, kind of not, not there's, there's no repeating of melodies, but it is just sort of a, a favored sort of uh, direction that the chords move in. Um, he also shifts a lot between major and minor, uh, which give his melodies, his themes, kind of a real a bittersweet uh, quality. There's a bittersweet tone to it. Um, also, in, in kind of revisiting a lot of his themes, I find that he he seems to favor the waltz time a lot, a three four time a lot. Uh, his themes seem to have a, a swaying motion to them, um, and uh, they uh, he also likes to highlight um, certain solo instruments. Um, specifically, at least I find this early in his, his career, as far as like fifties and sixties, um, had a lot of the cymbalom and dulcimer, you know, sort of in that realm and sometimes a zither, but mainly the cymbalom, uh, the woodwinds, he likes to favor a lot of woodwinds as soloists and also an electronic instrument called the Andes Martineau. So this was a French instrument. This was a, uh, an electronic instrument that's a little bit like the theremin, um, but it's more precise, I think, I think, in its tonal quality and that you can get it to play more n- notes more precisely. It's not as sort of uh, the theremin seems to be sometimes all over the place in terms of the sounds. Um, he uh, he used it on Lawrence of Arabia and then uh, so he you know started with it in 62. But then he he started using it a lot more heavily once he hit the 80s. But um, he, uh, he he definitely liked to favor that as far as a, a soloist in his scores. But I wanted to play a little bit of uh, his uh, one of his earlier uh, French film scores. Uh, this one is Les Yeux Sans Visage, uh, Eyes Without a Face. Um, and it showcases some of those tenets that I mentioned. It's uh, also very small scale. Like that basically in the 50s and 60s, or at least, you know, for, for a lot of the, his film scores, he, he, there's a smaller instrumental grouping. It's almost chamber music. It's, it's just fewer players. It's not large scale at all. And uh, so you'll you'll hear uh, some of those tenets in uh, this music here from uh, Les Yeux Sans Visage from 1959. <laughs> Thank you. 
So Eyes Without a Face uh, was one of uh, several films that uh, Marie Char scored for uh, French director Georges Franjou. Uh, there was another movie that he uh, scored for him called uh, Teresa, uh, which was from 1962, uh, which I'll play a little bit from here. It also features the some of those same tenets that I mentioned of, of Jar's sound. Um, this one features a lot more solo piano, but um, and, and sort of a swaying motion to the the theme. And there's a, this rolling or arpeggiation uh, behind the behind the melody that kind of gives it this uh, that that swaying quality. Um, but also listen for the chord progressions here because I find that as the theme as the melody moves through this particular chord progression that it's it's something that Maurice Jarre revisits in a number of other themes and so again kind of once you hang on to that um, you'll be able to recognize it in uh, some of his other themes but uh, here's uh, some of his music from Teresa uh, from 1962. So there was another uh, movie that Marie Char scored that same year in 1962 called uh, Les Dimanches uh, de Via d'Avray, which uh, producer Sam Spiegel saw and was impressed with Jarre's music. Now, Sam Spiegel was the producer on Lawrence of Arabia. So this is in 1962, and uh, the director of, of Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean, was still uh, working on the film, still in uh, editing it, and Sam Spiegel decided to seek out Marie Char to do the music. Now, interestingly, it wasn't as straightforward as that, um, because when he, this is a story that had been relayed in several interviews with Jar, but, and he relayed this story that Sam Spiegel had come to him and said, hey, it's, you're going to be one of three composers working on this movie. Isn't that great? And at the time, Jar had talked about how young he was, and he was just excited just to work on this. And he's great. Who else do you have? And Sam Spiegel mentioned he had um, classical composer Aram Kachaturian, uh, is going to hire him to do the uh, Arabic music, which Jar thought was funny because he Kachaturian uh, was Russian, and then he said he was going to hire Benjamin Britten, a uh, British composer, to write the British music for Lawrence of Arabia, which made more sense to Jar, and that Jar would simply fill in the gaps. He would orchestrate and just write some other program music. So it was it fell apart completely. Uh, Benjamin Britten apparently asked for a year and a half to score the movie to write his music, but the movie was due in like six months. So uh, there was a scramble. There was a, an attempt to get um, another composer in, Richard Rogers, and then finally what happened was that uh, David Lean got involved, heard what Marie Jarre was writing for the movie, and fought for him uh, so that Sam Spiegel eventually had to relent. 
Um, and Maurice Jarre had written a theme, which we had heard at the top of the show, with that for David Lean completely encapsulated uh, Lawrence's character, and uh, it, it didn't favor an Arabic or a British sound. Um, however, Jarre, it's a multi-thematic work, and Jarre did also write, you know, other uh, themes for it, an Arabic theme, and, and sort of a very... Uh, uh, sort of a British theme that sort of represents home uh, for Lawrence, and it's a jaunty sort of piece. Um, and I wanted to play a little bit more of Lawrence of Arabia here. Um, this is from the uh, the main title, and it uh, it has a burst of the of Lawrence, the main Lawrence of Arabia theme, and then it goes into the home theme, which, like I said, is is this very jaunty uh, sort of work. I I really like this theme a lot. Um, and then before it goes back into the Lawrence of Arabia themes, so you'll hear that here. So Lawrence of Arabia, as you can imagine, was a, a massive uh, debut for Marie Shard for English-speaking audiences. I, I, I think it, it could be akin to um, Bernard Herrmann being introduced uh, through Citizen Kane. I mean, now, while Citizen Kane was his first movie score, um, it's touted as one of the, you know, a, a, one of, if not the best movies ever. Um, and his, his score is rightly um, lauded as well. And with Lawrence of Arabia, again, Academy Awards, you know, all over the, the map for that movie. Um, Marie Jarre won an Academy Award for his music. Um, and it's uh, still heralded today. You know, it's still one of the highlights of his entire career. And it just was right, right out of the gate. He caught everybody's attention. So, you know, from that point forward, he was kind of splitting his time uh, for, for the next decade or so, splitting his time between um, Hollywood movies and then those still in, in uh, Europe. He had moved to the United States uh, after that. Um, and he also continued working with David Lean. So he pretty much scored the rest of David Lean's movies from that point forward. Um, and he uh, he kind of got, you know, th there was this, as part of that, that French New Wave that I had mentioned, it, it's very famous uh, for introducing a lot of uh, heralded directors like Francois Truffaut. Um, there were a number of French composers that came along with that. So there was Marie Char, Georges Delarue, Michel Legrand, and, and Francis Lay, um, who all kind of came from that, that uh, from French films and, and a lot from the new wave uh, movies that then kind of came to um, American audiences through American movies in the 60s. So there was like those four French composers that kind of made it big uh, as far as uh, Hollywood uh, is concerned and continued to work in Hollywood uh, for decades after. 
But for Marie Char, the next major highlight for him uh, would be Dr. Zhivago, directed by David Lean and released in uh, 1965, uh, starring Omar Sharif. Uh, so with Dr. Zhivago, um, the, it has an all-important love theme to it. And um, the, the story goes, and Marie Char had relayed this uh, to, uh, to, to interviews before, that um, he kept coming back to David Lean with versions of this love theme, and it was, and uh, David Lean replied, it's too sad, it's too fast. Um, and uh, apparently Jar was, he mentioned he was sort of unconsciously trying to mimic a Russian folk song that Lean had played for him early on in production. And um, Lean finally just simply said, you know, forget all that. Um, look, it's Friday, uh, go to the mountains with your girlfriend for the weekend and just think about writing a theme, you know, for, for love, you know, basically just kind of steep yourself in that, come back and then, you know, tell me what you got. And apparently he had a nice vacation you know, for the weekend in the mountains, came back on Monday and wrote in an hour what would become Laura's theme. And Laura's theme uh, has become, again, one of the uh, most uh, often used and referenced uh, film, you know, movie themes uh, throughout all history, just like Lawrence of Arabia. It's kind of up there with Star Wars and Jaws that it, it's a melody that everybody knows, even if you don't know, Marie Char wrote it. But again, it got referenced, you know, time and time again. Um, and uh, it kind of came to represent, you know, the, uh, sort of a love theme, uh, the sort of the ultimate love theme. But uh, I wanted to play a bit of Laura's theme here. It also became quite a, a, a pop hit as well. There were lyrics put to it uh, for radio play. Um, but this is the version that you hear in the movie. A lot of balalaikas used in that one. Uh, I think in the score, Jar wrote for something like 30 different balalaikas, um, all different varieties of bass baritone. Um, but that theme um, and that uh, that piece you can hear has a, still a lot of the hallmarks of the Marie Char sound in terms of that chord progression. It, it's in a 3-4 time, so it's, it's sort of a waltz tune. Um, there's some you know soloists, you hear a little bit of the cymbal on in there. And, uh, of course, the balalaika is, and uh, it has sort of a bittersweet quality. But it's, it's again, one of those love themes that uh, became referenced and parodied for decades after. It's interesting. I don't know if most people now, if you played it for them, would know, oh, it's Dr. Zhivago. But for years, like, everybody knew that from Dr. Zhivago. I think people were probably, you know, inundated with it, especially in 65, 66, when it became a, uh, a pop hit on the radio, too. 
Now, Dr. Zhivago was another big hit uh, for both director David Lean and for composer Marie Char. Uh, big hit at the Oscars, big hit at the box office, and uh, Marie Char won another, uh, his second Oscar uh, for Best Music. Um, it's actually his second of third. He wound up winning three Oscars over the course of his career. Um, and the other one, uh, the third, was for another David Lean movie, A Passage to India, interestingly enough. So you would think that, you know, after... Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Trivago, two huge hits, um, you know, in terms of critics and awards and, and pop culture, um, that uh, a, a bit of typecasting would come into play uh, with Marie Char's career, in terms of American films anyway, because it, it didn't seem to happen with uh, European films for him. Um, and while there wasn't a particular genre that he got typecast in uh like it wasn't like elmer bernstein doing you know a whole string of westerns um it's kind of funny if you go through marie char's catalog though his career you'll see a lot of epics um a lot of longer movies bigger themes big casts um and uh, he even did a few more desert adventures quote unquote like lawns of arabia he did a few more desert set movies so there there was a little bit of like well he can be the go-to guy for the epic movie the epic romance um, and, uh, that is seen in the, uh, in the next, the next movie I wanted to play a bit from, which is called Is Paris Burning from 1966. Um, it's about the uh, French resistance, uh, late during World War II. Um, and, uh, it's, again, it's a, it's a epic length movie. Uh, it has a big multinational cast, um, and Jar responded with both a Parisian waltz and also a, a militaristic march uh, for the resistance. So I want to play a bit of the waltz theme here from Is Paris Burning from That tune really becomes kind of an earwig for me. Uh, once I hear it, it just seems to kind of loop and loop in, in my head. Uh, but I want to also play a little bit of the uh, accompanying uh, other major theme from Is Paris Burning, which is the uh, heavier uh, military march. Um, and it brings to the fore the percussive element. So um, while I had mentioned that uh, Jarre had studied the Paris Conservatory and, and percussion was his primary instrument, um, that he was such a melodic composer, but it doesn't mean he didn't use percussion heavily. Um, so you'll hear it here. And then um, as we get into some of his other scores, especially the Westerns, there's a lot of percussive elements there that he uh, uh, got to, to play around with. So here's a bit of the overture from Is Paris Burning?
Another highlight from that same year as Is Paris Burning in 1966 is a movie called Grand Prix, directed by John Frankenheimer and starring James Garner. Uh, it's a movie about uh, Formula One car racing uh, in Monaco, and uh, Marie Char and John Frankenheimer had previously collaborated on another movie called The Train from a couple years earlier. Uh, but interestingly enough, Jarre was not the first composer who was assigned to score Grand Prix. Apparently, uh, Jerry Goldsmith was originally going to uh, write the music for it, and then there wound up being a scheduling conflict, and he wound up doing uh, The Sand Pebbles. But uh, with this movie, it, it kind of still fits along with what has been what was becoming a trend for, for Jarre, in that it's a, um, a, a large-scale movie. It's a it's an epic length movie. It's got a large multinational cast. It has a European setting, so his particular compositional style um, kind of fits well with that. Um, and it allowed him to bring a lot of he brought a lot of percussion into it, which is very interesting. Um, so before writing the score, actually, uh, John Frankenheimer had asked Marie Char to uh, ride along in a Formula One uh, uh, race car uh, just so he could get the feel of um, how fast, you know, the, the speed of going around the laps. So what's great is, you know, he had that experience and uh, was able to bring that into the music uh, for Grand Prix. So I wanted to play a bit of the uh, overture. And so what's really neat about this is, you know, um, so Jar is bringing in, you know, he's, he still has a large orchestra, but and uh, a really large percussion section. So, you know, again, him studying percussion, he was able to bring a lot of really uh, cool items into it. And also, right at the start, you'll hear uh, trumpets and, and trombones kind of do what's called a, a pitch bend. And it sounds like they're sort of panning from left and right in the speaker. So it almost sounds like you're sitting in the stands and uh, cars are just kind of zipping past you. So it's a really cool effect that he does with the music. But uh, the the propul it's a very propulsive piece, so it's very exciting. It kind of charges forward and in in and in this sort of you know like as if you're in this Formula One racer. But the theme itself is very buoyant, uh, very joyful. So it's not like it's a dangerous. You don't have like this dangerous feel. It's like it's exciting and it's fun. Uh, that type of theme. So here's a little bit of the overture from Grand Prix from 1966. So as Marie Char continued working more and more in Hollywood, 
um, and his star continued to rise. Uh, he, of course, was called upon, just like pretty much every composer in that time period, uh, to do westerns. Um, and he was able to still bring his own unique stamp to westerns. Um, you know, that, uh, that percussive feel, his own, you know, again, unique uh, chord progressions, his own quirky sensibilities. And uh, he, so he didn't really follow the model of an Aaron Copeland. He didn't really follow the model of Ennio Morricone or Elmer Bernstein. His Westerns sort of have their own flavor. Um, uh, they ha- often have a lot of rhythmic drive, uh, kind of mixed meters, uh, as, as they call it, uh, kind of moving between uh, those different tempos. And um, a lot of Latin American feel to them, a lot of Latin American instrumentation and, and, um, and buoyancy. And so I wanted to play a little bit of uh, his music from a movie called Villa Rides, or Villa Rides, I should say, because it's a movie about Pancho Villa uh, from 1968, and uh, it stars Yul Brenner and uh, Robert Mitchum. Um, it, uh, it's inter- interestingly, it was actually written by uh, Sam Peckinpah, um, who is notable for movies like The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs. And uh, apparently it went through such heavy rewrites um, that he just really kind of disavowed that any that the movie even resembled anything that he wrote. Um, it wound up being rewritten so much. But uh, yeah, so with the, with Villa Rides, um, so I want to give an example of him, of Marie Char, bringing his, you know, European, uh, French, you know, style into an American Western, essentially. Um, and so you can get that here. And this is a cue called The Battle. Uh, from from Villa, from Villa Rides, and it 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 uh, it's like it has almost a percussive solo start um, before it moves into that Latin American section, and then you'll hear the the main theme kind of uh, burst forth here. It's interesting to note that also while at the Paris Conservatory, Marie Char had studied uh, ethnic music, uh, Japanese, Arabic, uh, Latin American, and he mentioned in interviews how much this uh, helped him uh, you know, later on, whether it was scoring a movie that took place in that particular location or just simply borrowing some of the instrumentation from those other cultures. And uh, there was an interview he did uh, with Stéphane uh, Le Rouge uh, for the, the liner notes for an, a Western called Red Sun. 
And I want to read a little bit of uh, what he had said about that topic. Um, Marie Char said, Folklore, or all folk, folk music, in fact, has always been a passion of mine. When I was at the conservatoire, I did a lot of research into different ethnic music, but I never thought that one day I'd write it myself. To me, Arab, Japanese, or Vietnamese instruments have always meant original possibilities of expression, especially in the 50s and 60s when the synthesizer didn't exist. If you wanted to create surprise by using characteristic, uh, unusual timbres, then you had no choice but to dip into folklore. The cinema has regularly given me, given me the chance to make use of my knowledge of ethnic music. So I think that uh, something that comes to the forefront with uh, Villa Rides, and uh, in this case, the uh, Western Red Sun. He also went on to do Westerns like El Condor and The Life of Times of Judge Roy Bean um, that allowed him to pull from those. And also, and it's interesting with some of those, like uh, that last one I just mentioned, The Life of Times and Judge Roy Bean. Um, allowed him to sort of scale back the orchestra again to a smaller ensemble. So in the 50s, as we had heard, his music was much more small scale, much more like a chamber orchestra, uh, before he moved into the larger orchestral palette with Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago and um, Is Paris Burning. And uh, But some of these westerns allowed him to get really sparse, uh, really dry um, and austere soundscapes. Um, with just, you know, just solo instruments here and there, a cymbal arm, you know, some percussion, things like that. Um, it's very interesting, very, very neat, uh, evocative scoring uh, for Westerns. But another one that I wanted to mention as far as the Westerns that he did, there was one uh, in 1968, same year as Villa Rides, called Five Card Stud. The reason I wanted to mention it is uh, it's a movie starring Dean Martin and Robert Mitchum, has to do with poker players, um, and uh the theme that Murray Shar wrote um, was able to have a vocal uh, since Dean Martin was the star. He got to actually sing the title tune, and uh, I always thought it was a great tune, a really cool song, and uh, it kind of shows that crossover as Murray Shar worked more and more in Hollywood films, how the uh, pop world was influencing film scoring, and how if you had a star of Dean Martin's caliber, well, let's the thinking was, let's see what we can get a pop tune out of it, um, but also how pop... Uh, the, the sound of pop and rock um, was starting to be incorporated into film scores uh, from the uh, the 60s on. And uh, this was an element uh, that you could hear in Five Card Stud. So here's a little bit of that title tune um, from Five Card Stud with vocal by Dean Martin. Was king at five card stud. The stranger's game was five card stud. He was hard to beat, rather play than eat. Long as it was five card stud, when he played, he played full blood. When this rambling, gambling man said, Dealer, you had better beware. Bet you poke, and he'd leave you broke. Then he'd make a joke as he slyly grinned. Then he'd say, That's enough today. And he'd ride away like the wind. Stud was all he lived and breathed. But now and then a fire seed. 
So I'm not sure if you heard right there at the beginning of the song is uh, the sound of playing cards being scraped against somebody's hand. So it's a cool little oral aspect of the score that plays into the plot of the movie with it having to uh, revolve around poker players. But also that that song still bears the hallmarks of Marichar's style. In fact, the bridge uh, goes into a waltz tempo into a 3-4 time, which as we've heard is is a, a favorite, uh, seems to be a recurring tempo that Marichar um, liked to use. And also the chord progression that that goes through um, is a very Marichar type of uh, chord progression that he favored. But this that song kind of brings me into talking about how as far as he moved into the 70s and and uh, marie char was doing more and more hollywood movies um you know there's more incorporation of those uh current pop trends whether uh, like i said rock or pop or even as you get into the 70s um r b and funk and so i wanted to be able to play some examples of just a couple examples of those from the early 70s the first of which is a movie uh, called Pope Joan, uh, starring Liv Ullman and Jeremy Kemp uh, from 1972. Um, Richard sort of provided a, a score, an orchestral score that has a, a religious feel, a religious feel to it, uh, and it kind of has an ancient feel to it. But it uh, then goes into a bass line, which is a pretty funky uh, version of the main theme. And uh, I wanted to play a little bit of that here. Uh, it's a cue called "The Devil's Imposter," and uh, I wanted to play the portion of it that has the funky version of the main theme. So the next example I wanted to play is from a movie called Ash Wednesday from 1973, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Henry Fonda. Uh, And again, this is sort of falling into that early 70s mold of incorporating some of the current pop trends at the time. So in this case, Marie Char, it's more of a gentle, uh, you know, sort of pop rhythm section uh, more than Pope, you know, than Pope Joan. Um, Guitar, you know... um, just sort of a scaled down orchestra, guitar, solo, oboe, strings, um, and again, kind of a swaying rhythm and a bittersweet melody to it. Uh, again, it's it sounds like it's it's you know Marichard, you know, um, kind of being himself. Uh, it's got a very European kind of flavor to it, uh, and so it, it kind of it's a sweet but sad uh, tune, and uh, I think it's real winner. Uh, so you'll hear a little bit of that here in the main title from Ash Wednesday.
So there was an interview uh, with Marie Shar once where he was asked about the differences between uh, scoring movies in Hollywood versus Europe. And uh, I wanted to read uh, some of Marie Shar's response to that. It was an interview with Royal S. Brown. Uh, so Marie Shar uh, said, In Europe, and especially in France, they all think they're so wonderful, so gifted, that they don't need rehearsals. And that's in all branches of music, not just film scoring. If there isn't a disaster during a performance, a concert, or a recording session, you consider it a success. I didn't find this mentality when I arrived here, meaning here in the States. Here, 9 o'clock is 9 o'clock. The musicians arrive for a recording session at 8 o'clock, which means that at 9 o'clock sharp you begin, because the engineers had all the mics set up since 7 o'clock. Once you've had a taste of this way of working, there's no going back and saying, oh, it's not serious, we're missing a trumpet player, but he'll show up later. Uh, so I just thought it was really, you know, uh, interesting. He, he mentioned also um, early days of, of uh, scoring movies in France that they didn't even kind of time things out with the cues. Uh, they would basically keep recording the same piece of music over and over and either trying to make it faster or slower so that it would fit the uh, timing of the scene. They had, didn't weren't using click tracks or, or anything like that, which I thought was really interesting. It's it's It sounds so um, kind of haphazard, uh, but they were just making it up as they go along. I thought that was really pretty funny. So Jacques continued to work steadily throughout the 70s on a variety of projects, uh, both TV movies, TV miniseries, um, European and American productions, all different varieties of genres. Uh, he tackled adventures like The Man Who Would Be King and Shout at the Devil and uh, Prince and the Pauper and um, and he also, you know, tackled, uh, some interesting projects. Uh, there's not one from 1975 for a, a movie called Mandingo, uh, which was based on a novel about, uh, set in, in 1840, uh, about, uh, uh, slavery in the South, um, and a particular slave who's, uh, trained in bare knuckle boxing. What, uh, I find is interesting about this is it's Maurice Jarre's, uh, French, you know, European compositional style, um, kind of grafted with blues sort of grafted onto it and then he also sought after the um, uh, blues singer Muddy Waters to actually do vocals for the score and uh, he uh, he provides vocals for a song uh, called Born in This Time um, which I want to play a little bit of it's very I, I find it very interesting because again you still sort of get some of those hallmarks of Marie Char's style but um, you definitely get the bluesy uh, the shuffling sort of rhythm and some of those uh, blues chords sort of grafted into it. So I find it pretty fascinating. So here's a little bit of um, the music from Mandingo from 1975, specifically the section where Muddy Waters is singing uh, Born in This Time. Well, I was born in this time 
to never be free. Wait on my time for freedom. Now is way up ahead of me. So there are also two other interesting projects that I think sort of fall in line with the uh, trend of uh, Marie Char uh, being sought after for epics, uh, and uh, especially uh, epics set in the desert. Um, in uh, 76 and 77, he did uh, projects, which I, th- I find ironic that they were back-to-back, but he uh, did a movie called The Message, which is about the beginnings of Islam, and that was in 1976. And then in 1977, he did a TV movie, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so I find it interesting that he was able to, again, kind of apply, um, his sensibilities to those scores. Um, but what's interesting is, um, with the message, both actually scores, uh, kind of steer away from his usual harmonic intervals and, and some of his usual hallmarks. Uh, the message pulls a lot more on, uh, Middle Eastern scales and, and he was able to actually draw upon his studies of ethnic music, uh, from the Paris Conservatory. And as far as, um, instrumentation and percussion, um, and those, those, uh, particular musical, um, uh, qualities of Middle Eastern music. And then for Jesus of Nazareth, there's dissonance in there. Um, and also some, uh, more triumphant, uh, sections that are a bit more, uh, triumphant as far as Western music is concerned. So they fall in line a little bit more with what you would hear from, uh, a religious epic, of from Hollywood, uh, something in Alfred Newman or Miklos Rocha. There's a little bit of that in there, um, but they're both great scores and they're both very melodic. And so, um, I wanted to play a little bit of, uh, the cue, the faith of Islam from the movie, the message. And so you can get, you know, how he approached, um, the Arabic uh, sound uh, in his score with this cue. So definitely one of the hallmarks there that you can get from uh, from the the message is the use of Andes Martineau, uh, which was a favorite instrument of Marie Char. I had mentioned at the top of the episode that as far as the favorite soloist instruments that he liked to feature, the Andes Martineau was definitely one of those um, that uh, he he started to feature more, especially as his career went on. But it has this. Um, ethereal sort of quality. Um, it's an electronic instrument, but like I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's close to sounding like the theremin, but it's it's more uh, controlled than the theremin as far as the tones that it can hit. And so you heard that there at the end of uh, the message, um, in more of that sort of wandering bridge uh, with the the tablas and so the different percussion instruments there. 
And so to follow along on that, uh, so the very next year in 77, he did uh, Jesus of Nazareth. It was like I said, it was a TV movie, a TV production. Um, But uh, it opens with these dissonant stabbing chords, which, uh, you know, can represent the the torture of of Jesus on the cross. But it also has these more exultant passages, uh, some of these triumphant passages. Um, uh, Again, it's, it's still, you know, very melodic score, even with some of those dissonances. Um, that uh, Marie Char, you know, he he would definitely he he was not unafraid of dissonance in his music, and there were um, definitely occasions where he would drop it in and and use it to his advantage um, in the score. I don't think I played as much of the, his dissonant stuff on this episode, um, mainly because he was primarily known as you know a very melodic composer. Um, but here is a bit from Jesus of Nazareth from 1977. <laughs> So I think both those scores stand apart from the the typical uh, hallmarks that I've been talking about on this episode of Marie Char, um, that they kind of don't uh, showcase as many of the uh, same um, harmonic uh, qualities or the same chord progressions um, and melodic lines that you find in in, uh, in throughout Marie Char's work. But they're really they're really great scores. But it is interesting how uh, they, that they do sound different from what had come before. Um, but it just shows his range. It just shows also like how much he was able to draw upon from his uh, this, his time studying different uh, ethnic music um, and being able to pull from that into the scores. But that kind of brings me up into um, the 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 next section here with uh, the big paradigm shift that happened for Jar in the 1980s. Uh, so. You know, in the 80s, with electronic music coming to the forefront in pop music, this wound up influencing film scores. Um, and thus, other film composers were adopting electronics into their scores. It 
was nothing different than what happened in the 70s with, you know, R&B and funk that influenced film scores at that point. But um, in the 80s, you know, um, it sort of became, again, the rage to either have electronics with the orchestra or all electronic scores. And so I think composers that had come up from the 50s, you know, were feeling they needed to adopt that in order to stay relevant. And I think it provided a unique scenario for composers uh, because in the concert world, you wouldn't have something like this happen. You wouldn't have a composer who uh, was primarily known for orchestral uh, compositions then have to shift to doing electronic-only compositions. But that's what happened uh, with Marie Jarre and then also with Jerry Goldsmith, who incorporated electronics heavily into his scores and even did a few all-electronic scores himself. Now, whether or not they're successful is subjective. Um, I find some of Richard's electronic work a little too harsh and dissonant, whereas I love Jerry Goldsmith's electronic work. So it's it's not that I'm against electronics. There's just qualities I preferred in Goldsmith's over Jarre's. But um, Jarre really kind of completely embraced electronics. Uh, so year, movies like The Year of Living Dangerously and Dreamscape and Witness um, saw him adopt an, all, you know, an electronic ensemble. So I want to play a little bit of Witness here, one of his most notable scores from the 80s. Um, and it's a movie directed by Peter Weir, starring Harrison Ford. And in uh, talking about this score, um, Marie Char had some interesting comments he made about why he went the electronic route. Um, so I wanted to read a little bit of his comments here, um, where he uh, says, uh, I also decided that electronic sounds would be better than orchestral music for a witness. Firstly, I thought that the music should be without sentimentality, so that it was almost cold, detached. Secondly, the Amish people don't want instrumental music as they say it's from the devil. Nevertheless, electronic music can have a slightly acoustical sound like an aura. And what happened with with the uh, with his music with the score for Witness, which I think is interesting, is that it wasn't him on a synth. Um, he basically put together like a nine piece band. Um, it was a little bit of a return to the scores of his for French films in the 50s, where it was more of a chamber uh, orchestra. It was just a smaller group of, of players, but he put together like a synth ensemble. So it was him and eight or nine other guys uh, playing synths like you would, you know, sort of in a, in a chamber music ensemble or in a band. Um, so it, you know, it's really, it's, it's still a, a nice sound to it. So I want to play a bit of the most famous cue from that movie, um, building the barn, uh, which is pretty much the, the, uh, the standout, one of the, those scenes that, uh, gets referenced a lot, um, in movies. And it's the, the structure of the cue is like a cannon, which the best way to define it is, uh, like row, row, row your boat in which each sing, each singer duplicates the melody, or in this case, each player is duplicating the melody, but starting later. Um, and I think most people have, uh, heard it at a wedding or two, uh, when they often play Paco Bell's Canon. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely a musical form that people have heard before. Um, but yeah, I wanted to play a little bit of that cue here, building the barn from witness.
So of course, Marie Shard did not abandon the orchestra entirely in that decade. And in fact, the same year as he composed Witness, there are three other scores that feature some of his strongest work for the orchestra. And that would be The Bride, Enemy Mine, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. They both showcase some amazingly memorable and, and brilliant orchestral writing from him. Um, the Enemy Mine sort of incorporates the electronics from that period, whereas The Bride and, and Mad Max are, are more um, fully orchestral. Uh, but you can still find the hallmarks of his style. In fact, uh, one of those that, I, that I've mentioned several times is the Andes Martino, again, which is that electronic instrument, which he used as far back as Lawrence of Arabia, and we heard a little bit of in The Message from 1976. So um, I wanted to, to play a sample of it to, to give you more of an idea of its sound um, from The Bride, because there, there's the, the opening cue from that um, has the Andes Martineau as a solo instrument, so you can get an idea of its sound quality, how it's similar to the theremin, but it's a little more controlled and, and hitting the notes. And also, um, I should mention that uh, Elmer Bernstein started using the Andes Martineau in the 80s as well. So if you're at all familiar with some of his work, specifically uh, something like Ghostbusters, you'll actually you'll recognize this sound quality being uh, heard in uh, Elmer Bernstein's score for Ghostbusters from 1984. So they both, both composers were using the Andes Martineau a lot in their scores from the 80s. But here's a little bit from The Bride uh, from 1985. Uh, it's a movie starring Sting and Jennifer Beals. Uh, it's pretty much just a you know, retelling of The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, but it uh, it starts out with the Andes Martineau. Um, it's very quiet, um, but the Andes Martineau has a solo there to start with on the theme. And then it becomes more rapturous as the uh, the strings really kind of fold into it, and it just blossoms from there. So one of the interesting things about this uh, era overall um, at that time uh, was in the, the post-Star Wars world, there was such a, a glut of sci-fi fantasy movies um, that most every working composer got their chance to compose music for something in that genre. It's very similar to what happened in, uh, with the Westerns in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, when pretty much everybody got, got a crack at it. But uh, Marie Char um, got uh, two sci-fi movies that same year as The Bride and, and Witness, which was Enemy Mine and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And I wanted to play a bit of uh, Mad Max because it shows showcases um, a very large orchestra 
sweeping melodicism, the Andes Martineau, he adds in an organ, he adds in the didgeridoo from Australia, and he also has a large battery of percussion. So as far as those hallmarks of Marichard's sound, um, a number of them are present in this score. And it really actually fits in well with the um, the, the trend of Marichard that continued, which is of him scoring desert adventures or epics. Uh, so it falls kind of in that group of Lawrence of Arabia and the message and line of the desert. Um, so it's kind of fascinating to see it as a post-apocalyptic Lawrence of Arabia type score. But, um, it, you know, the hallmarks of his, his sound are still there, like I said, in terms of the instrumentation. Um, some of his, his favorite chord progressions are there. It's interesting that uh, one of the things I, I had noted early on in his career was that fondness for a, a waltz t- a time, a 3-4 time, which really kind of started to go away by now. Um, but definitely you'll still hear uh, components of his sound here. A little bit of a dissonance, but um, it's appropriate for the subject matter. So what I wanted to play was uh, just a, 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 an example of the uh, fanfare for Thunderdome. Um, and again, this, if anyone doesn't really know, is the third film in the uh, Mad Max series uh, starring Mel Gibson. Uh, this also uh, co-starring Tina Turner. Um, and uh, so this fanfare that you'll hear opens up uh, the Thunderdome sequence, uh, the fight sequence in, early in the movie. And then I wanted to play a bit of the uh, chase music from the end of the film uh, on a train. So you can get an idea of the percussive element um, that he brought into this movie. Uh, so again, as, as Marie Char had studied this, you know, and, uh, and at the Paris Conservatory, he's still able to draw upon, you know, all of his experience with the uh, percussive instrumentation and how to bring that into his orchestral score and make it interesting. So here's a bit of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome.
So Marie Char stayed in demand during that decade, um, had a number of highlights, scoring, uh, scoring movies in all different genres, comedies such as Top Secret and Moon Over Parador, um, Oscar-nominated movies like Gorillas in the Mist and Dead Poets Society. Um, he won an Oscar for Passage to India. And uh, so it was definitely uh, still a, you know, a lot of career highlights for him. And, and uh, his, his hallmark, the hallmarks of his sound still persisted. He still did a lot of electronic work um, as well as some orchestral. And then he began the 90s with a bang with Ghost, starring Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore, um, which was a huge commercial hit, uh, more than anybody expected for that year, um, and garnered him another Oscar nomination. Um, however, the music that everybody remembers from that movie is the song Unchained Melody, um, which, fun fact, is actually a song. It's The song is based on a melody composed by a uh, film composer uh, Alex North for a movie called Unchained. Uh, so that's why it's called Unchained Melody. It doesn't really have any other title than that, uh, just in case anybody didn't know that. But uh, it's so funny, that's that's the music everyone remembers from Ghost more than Marie Char's score. Um, and uh, his score, you know, had a mix of electronic, some of the, the more dissonant, harsh electronics and, and sort of a, a lush love theme as well. Um, but as you get in through the 90s, there was another shift. And I, it's interesting because it kind of had sort of a negative effect on him and a few other composers. It was more a shift towards the homogenization of the of the sound of film music. And, you know, whereas when Marie Jarre came up uh, in the, and started scoring in the 50s and 60s, individuality was prized as far as the uh, the film composer. Um, you People, you know, the, the studios and directors wanted the personality of that film composer and that music to sound like their style. And by the time we hit the 90s, there was a little bit more of a homogenization. And unfortunately, composers... Uh, that were that of his generation, uh, the uh, like uh, from the started in the fifties, started finding their music rejected uh, and unused in the movies they were composing for. So Marie Char wound up uh, writing music for movies such as The River Wild and Jennifer Eight and getting his scores um, uh, replaced. Uh, and so this happened to him and John Barry and Elmer Bernstein. And it's interesting. So I, I sometimes wonder if it's because of those hallmarks of his sound that I had talked about that persisted throughout that somehow they. They seem to fall out of favor. Um, his uh, overt melodicism, um, you know, the, his favorite soloist, uh, you know, the favorite soloed instruments, um, his European style of composition. Um, I guess it just seemed like it didn't seem to mesh with '90s film sensibilities. So, um, you know, I think some of his he still scored movies throughout the '90s, but it was just unfortunate that uh, some of those scores wound up being replaced. But I want to pull out one example from the late 90s, uh, 1999 to be exact, um, with a movie called Sunshine uh, that he scored. Uh, it stars Ray Fiennes, and it's a uh, multi-generational um, movie. It uh, spans multi uh, multiple generations, and it's a big three-hour uh, epic about a family called the Sun and Shines. And uh, what I love about it, I think it's it's probably the last big epic score that he did in his career before he passed away in 2009. Um, there's also a lot of the tenets of his style that you'll hear, uh, very melodic, very lush, and, uh, you'll hear some of those favored, uh, chord progressions in there. Um, you, I think there's even a cymbal on in there. Um, but it's, uh, it has a lot of those grand gestures that, uh, that he was, that he was loved for, that he was known for. I think that were, that were just part of his style and how he approached film. But, uh, but I also wanted to close with a quote that he had given in an interview, um, in a book called Film Music from a series called Screencraft, um, he had noted in this interview at the very end, he said, every time I finish a film, I don't want to watch it anymore or to listen to the music. 
I spend a lot of energy on it and I love to do it, but the last time I want to see it is at the first public performance as a member of the audience. That's it. So I just find it interesting that Marie Jarre was averse to, uh, uh, he was adverse to kind of revisiting his own work, whether just watching the movies or revisiting the music. Um, he just sort of moved from project to project. And, uh, and yet there was such a consistency that you can hear in his sound that, uh, that his, it, you know, his personality came through in his music and, and far as his compositional style and the structure and, you know, what he favored. And that you can hear that in his film scores from uh, the 50s on up until the end of his career. And uh, thank goodness for the rest of us uh, that we can revisit his movies anytime we want and that we can listen to his music again and again. Um, I, for one, am grateful for that to be able to, uh, to you know, kind of dive into his music at any time. Uh, but here is some of his music for the 1999 film Sunshine. I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me to take a deep dive into the music of French composer Marie Char, uh, highlighting what to me make it uh, make his music unique and memorable. Uh, the quotes that I read from were from uh, a couple interviews. One uh, was a, uh, an interview he did with Royal S. Brown, uh, which you can find in a book called Overtones and Undertones. Um, and then there was also a book I, I, that I mentioned uh, called Film Music from the uh, book series Screencraft by Mark Russell and James Young. Music in this episode was composed by Marie Char and from the following films, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Les Yeux Sans Visage, uh, Thérèse, uh, Dr. Chivago, Is Paris Burning, Grand Prix, Via Rides, Five Card Stud, Pope Joan, Ash Wednesday, Mandingo, the Message, Jesus of Nazareth, Witness, The Bride, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and Sunshine. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at escortasettlepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com. 
and uh, also on Facebook at facebook.com slash a score to settle. If you do listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated and helps bring attention to the show. Thanks again for listening. 